Hi everyone, and welcome back to Decrypt. My name is Nick Rice, and today we'll be talking about how to respond to double extortion attacks. I'm joined here in London by Luke Fardell, Director in a Forensics Practice in EMEA. Hey Luke. Hey, how you doing Nick? Good, thanks. And Mark Fawcett is also here with us in the studio, an Associate Director in our Cyber Response Team. Hey Mark. Hey, good morning. Welcome to both of you and thanks for joining. I just, before we get started, want to set a little bit of the scene to what we actually talk about when we talk about double extortion, because I think it's it's a pretty confusing term in our industry already. But I just want to cast your minds back to around 2019, when a relatively unknown ransomware gang bursted on the scene by reaching out to bleeping computers, claiming to have compromised a security staffing company. And the email was signed off with the uh, name, the Mace Crew. And over the course of the next few days, and as the deadline for payment was looming, May started posting leaked data or alleged leaked data from that hack to Bleeping Computers Forum in an attempt to essentially coerce the victim into a ransom payment or potentially another ransom payment, as Mays had likely encrypted a lot of the files on the victim's systems and was then asking for another ransom to avoid publication. And this went on to become quite an innovative thing in our field at the time. They released their own publication platform, which was then uh, enabled for other ransomware groups to use for a fee, as always. And in a process that is very, very reminiscent to the sharing of logistical distribution network that drug trafficking organizations have been doing for the past 30 to 40 years. And from there on, we started seeing more and more these double whammies, and I don't think double whammy is actually the correct term, and I think I'm going to get corrected on this, but that's all right. These double extortions where ransomware was used to both encrypt data and then the data leaks were threatened and possibly avoided, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, if a victim paid potentially the ransom or maybe even another ransom. And that, I believe, has now gained a huge amount of traction. So, Maybe I can open up with this question to both of you guys. You've been dealing with this since the onset of, of that tactic emerging in the field. Can you share whether or not it is the norm today and importantly, how it's evolved since the very beginnings in 2019? Maybe we can start with you, Mark. So is it, is it the norm? I, I think so. Uh, most cases we, we deal with now have both an encryption element and a exfiltration of data element. There's a couple of other sort of aspects, I guess, that we can touch on later that some threat actors are throwing in there. Um, I think there's a podcast on Controlist website from a while ago where I said we're going through three phases. There was the phase of encryption where uh, an organization's operational capability was held to ransom. The phase of dual extortion where we have both the organization's operations, so the encryption element, but also the organization's reputation because that that's the concern with the, the, the data exfiltration. I then predicted the third phase of we'll just start seeing data exfiltration um, I'm hoping that podcast has disappeared somewhere deep, <laughs> deep away in our in our website. We can dig it out. Um, because I, I think we we saw a couple of cases, and I was like, oh yes, brilliant. But actually, it's, it's turned out to not necessarily be the case. And in fact, actually, and, and Luke's probably better to touch on this than me. The cases where we have just seen exfiltration of data 
actually there's indication that we've caught that attack early. Mm-hmm. We've managed to help the client stop stop whatever the hacker's doing, boot them out of the environment, and then they haven't been able to then go on and do their second step, which is the um, the encryption of the data. So yes, I, I think it is the norm now. There's a water company in the UK, I don't know if you saw that, that's been hit by data exfiltration by one of the um, ransomware groups, but they didn't successfully execute the, the ransomware. So I'm, I'm pretty sure we had that on a few cases where the threat actors got in, exfiltrated the data, but for whatever reason has tripped something up and then it's prevented them from actually fully executing the, the ransomware. But yeah, I do agree. It is the preferred method because they've just got you at that point. There's nothing you can do. You're going to have to engage with them at some point. If, you, if, they've, if they've got to your backup situation, um, taking that out, you're, you're going to have to speak to them or you know go through some negotiations to work out you know what they've taken or um, what they want in return for your data. It's, so it's interesting that you guys are talking about these instances where the actual execution of the ransomware component of the malware isn't working, but the exfiltration is. Can we look at that from a bit of a technical perspective? Because you'd assume from the kill chain steps, the ransomware execution would probably be the easiest bit. So is it because between the time to the initial infection to detection and mitigation and containment of the attack, it's still taking too long for these groups to exfiltrate the data and that's when they get caught? Or is it because they're sloppy? Or is it because maybe the intent is increasingly less towards the encryption of files and 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 and, and devices and more towards that exfiltration? Could you have a view on that, Luke? Yeah. So we like you mentioned at the beginning, we were we were involved in the maze um investigations from the outset. And we watched them as a team grow and we watched their capabilities grow and the way they found the important data, Mm -hmm. they got better at it and quicker and they understood the networks and the way in the Western world they were architected and where the key data is kept. And they got really good at finding the the data. The issue they had was that the bandwidth between organizations varied so much um, that Sometimes in order to get a sufficient amount of data out, it took too long. Um, so we did see instances where they were halfway through exfiltrating the data and someone in the command chain must have just pulled the plug and said, right, that's enough. Let's go for it now. As, as you mentioned, like the execution of the ransomware, it should be the easiest bit, but it all depends on their reconnaissance, how well they've performed their reconnaissance, how much of the network they can see and understand and have access to that dictates how successful the actual deployment of the ransomware executable is. And we've seen instances where the networks are very well architected, they're layered subnets, uh, VLAN off, et cetera. And they think they can see everything, but they haven't fully done the reconnaissance and they only affect a small portion. And and do you see, Mark, maybe from the from the crisis management angle, do you see these, these operations? Is there ever a situation when the negotiation may have started or the exfiltration or the data leak extortion has begun before the ransomware execution? Or is it usually after that they get booted out of the network that they would then say, okay, well, we're going to have to fall back on that one extortion tactic in essence? Good question. So uh, I I, th- I think we've seen both. Typically when we've seen just purely the exfiltration of data and the threat actor is still on the network, we are looking at a far more complex network and a more sophisticated threat actor, typically where they might not be aware that we are we are there and we can see them on the network and we need to work with the client to devise a, a very thorough 
um, and, and and fast executed eradication plan because they are probably sat there waiting to execute their their payload, which is the sort of encryption on on the network. The majority of the cases we deal with, though, and it's purely the nature of the work we do, is once everything has gone wrong. So the the exfiltration of data has been complete using whatever tooling they have. They're confident and comfortable to Luke's point that they've got what they need in order to execute their extortion strategy. They then encrypt the, the software and then they bug out from the network because what what more are they going to gain from looking at a load of encrypted data? To be quite frank, yeah. very little. We, we've had situations where we've identified the exfiltration and they haven't executed the ransomware and you've got to really tread carefully at that point that you don't alert them to, you know, you're about to kick them out the network because then they could execute the ransomware. You don't know what tools they've got in place already. So you've got to really be careful. It's a fine balance. Get your plan ready to eradicate or evict, we call it. And then essentially it's got to, you've got to set a date, time, bang, and then you've got to just execute it. So that's a really interesting point, Luke, because I wanted to get back to one of the things you've said earlier, which is we watched them grow and we grew with them. Um, paradoxically, I'm assuming that the complexity of the network point that you raised that is a hindrance for these groups is also potentially a hindrance for you guys. When you come in, you say, well, you know, we know more broadly in cyber asset management is still one of the biggest challenges that most of our clients face. But when you're dealing with that sort of we have potentially hours, maybe a few days to, to do something before they realize we've picked them up. How do you approach this essentially discovery point? How do you know where they've been? That's a really good question. So we started to speak to the um, the impacted organizations and you speak to the IT department and you can ask anyone in my team now, you ask for a network diagram, you get one from 10 years ago. That's, you know, there's whole departments that have grown and created and it's all out of date. So now what we do is we we basically map our own, we query the AD, we look at the objects and we build our own picture and we, we can do network scanning as well. So you've really got to do your own homework, essentially. The IT departments can give you so much information, but you just have to kind of caveat that, that a lot of the time they don't know what's on the network. Um, they call it shadow IT, you know. Some departments might need more access than others and local administrator rights, et cetera, for per, per, you know, perfectly good reasons in the business. But they're allowed to bring in their own devices and spin up VMs and they're just IT departments just can't keep up. You know, that's just the way we work now. We just and also when you factor cloud environments in as well. You can spin up a VM in seconds, shut it down in seconds. I mean, it's from from that point, I think, Mark, what what you see when you sort of take that initial phone call and you hear um, we've got data that allegedly has been exfiltrated. We don't really know who's behind it. We, What's your first sort of diagnostic approach to determine whether or not there's potentially a live executable? Do you, do you assume every time that call comes in, if it hasn't been triggered, it could be there? How do you manage potentially also the psychological stress when you tell an IT security team, by the way, guys, this may just be the beginning and there's another thing coming. Yeah, it, 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 it's a tough balance. From, from our perspective, we always assume it's about to happen. Um, but put yourself in client shoes. The message we're then delivering at that point is you've had a message saying data's been taken. You haven't seen any visceral impact of this attack yet because they can still use their computers. They can still interact. We've got to assume in this kind of scenario that I'm talking about that they haven't got sophisticated tooling and monitoring on the network. So they haven't seen the hacker there. You know, the the, the safest approach is not, not the most common for reasons that you're just 
just about to realize is, well, take the network offline. Um, because what we want to prevent is the threat actor's ability to trigger any kind of executable that will suddenly take an organization that is operational, albeit partially, because management are probably pretty distracted right now, to completely on its knees because everything's encrypted. But I mentioned the point there's no visceral impact. It's really hard to convince the CEO, the CIO of an organization that you should turn your company off to protect against a maybe that right now in the first 20 minutes of talking to you, I can't explain the percentage likelihood of that. I can say it's a maybe, so it's your call. Um, and and yeah, it, it, it's probably the, the, the sort of toughest hour-long conversation you'll have. Um, we, we, we tend to land in the middle and I always start at that point, which is the sort of highest impact but safest type approach and articulate to them. If they say, yeah, I want to be risk averse, let's do it, then everybody's happy. We, we have a pretty comfortable containment and eradication phase coming up. Uh, although we often land on a situation where they say, well, we don't want to take everything off, but can we take some targeted containment steps, mm -hmm. which uh, <laughs> varying in, in success, you know, we, we, can, we can take certain systems offline, we can scan the network externally and see what's open. But if we start doing that, as soon any step you take to block a port, block a system, whatever, triggers the point that Luke was talking about, which is we alert the threat actor and we have to assume the first step that we take, they can start encrypting systems. So before that, what we tend to do is say, right, okay, we'll take some targeted containment steps, mm -hmm. but can we have a very, very rapid conversation mm -hmm. of what the state of your backups are yeah. and are they offline and are they unplugged? Yeah. Because do before any? we yeah. do <laughs> anything that could make this situation worse, let's make sure we've got something that, that, that we can bring in and, and recover the organization with. That tends to be the most common approach that we right. take because executive sort of management won't turn their organizations off for, for something that, to be quite frank, they, they, they don't fully understand. And it comes back to the point that we always discuss in cyber, which is the board and executive management need to understand these things to a level of degree that enables them to make these decisions. But in the first hour we speak with them, it's unlikely that they have had that sort of background and that insight. So we're starting from ground zero. We'll be back to the podcast in just a moment. If you have any questions for myself, Luke, or Mark, please feel free to reach us on cyber at controlrisks.com or you will also find us on our controlrisks.com website with a detailed list of all the services and our thought leadership that we provide on cybersecurity and technology risk issues. All the links are in the description below. And now back to the podcast. One of the most tricky situations is where our client, the, the affected by the, you know, the, um, the hack, they provide a service to their clients and the, the, the impact of turning the network off or unplugging everything is going to have a massive fallout uh, to, you know, hundreds potentially customers of theirs. And they're all going to be knocking on the door asking, where's my data? Where's my system? Where's my application? Um, and, you know, that's when the comms piece comes in. How do you communicate the message? What do you tell them? Um, and then for us on the forensic side, you know, we're looking at every system that you look at is different. When, you organ when you're looking at one organization, the, the data structure, the way that the network's laid out, the way that people use machines is the same. But when you're providing a service to hundreds of clients, every system is used by every different organization in a different way. So every, every system's got a different story to tell and spotting the kind of abnormalities in that such varied data is a bit more tricky. 
it's it all of this i mean again goes back to do you know what you have on your network and can you quantify or at least articulate to executives and decision makers look as you said mark it's we have options in front of us you have to make the decision we can help you think through the consequences of that decision but ultimately goes back to this principle of exercising and rehearsing and turning this into muscle memory because who's going to be comfortable with that decision when it's 2 a.m. on a Friday night and you get the phone call and we're like, there might be something on the network that if we pressed on it, it could take everything down. So I just wanted to go back to another point of these double extortions because you mentioned this, Mark, at the onset, that reputational concern. And I want to draw a bit of a parallel with what we saw Lapses doing quite recently, which is almost disinformation saying we have stolen or very successfully compromised a particular company and here are screenshots to evidence it. We haven't. And the facts that came out a little bit later was that the compromise by by no means to the extent that we've seen before. But do you see this as also a feature of some of these more advanced double extortion groups where when they are not successful, they may still go and pretend that they were successful or hint that they were successful, or are they still so good that they really don't need to do that for now? And they're very, very content just continuing with the numbers that they're hitting. So we use three forms of evidence to make an assessment of has data been exfiltrated and therefore what information and what's the reputational impact. Uh, the first one is, and it's the best one, is what Luke and his team are working on. So is there actual evidence of this? Now, unfortunately, the hackers know that we're trying to do that, so they're going to try and cover their tracks. But if Luke and his team can turn around and say, Mark, we've seen 12 terabytes leave the network from this server, likely in these folders. Okay, we're good. We, we, we know we, and we can start quantifying the risk to the organization and in, to, to the point, their reputation. The next uh, and, and I'd probably put the next two equal out of the three is uh, just broad threat intelligence. So we'd be going to the threat intelligence team at Contraris and saying, right, we're very early days in the hack. We've got this particular group. You said lapsus. Um, what what is their technique? What is this, what is their techniques? Do do they typically exfiltrate data? Is there is there any evidence that historically they've said they've stolen a hundred gigabytes and they've only taken twenty? Uh, that that's the the sort of most uh, the, the fastest form of intelligence we can often get because unfortunately as as much as we want sort of Luke and his team to work faster and, and more hours <laughs> those that, that takes trying. time yeah it takes time so we tend to lean on the threat intelligence and then the third form is ask the hacker um you know hi hi criminal what, 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 what information to? have yeah. you got please provide proof of the information that you have stolen uh that I, I said that one third. I put said I'd put it equal second in terms of the weight that we put yeah. to it. But it's always the last consideration that we yeah. look to um, before we enter into any kind of dialogue with the threat actor. We've got to walk through the uh, moral, ethical considerations of engaging with a criminal entity, with the client, and make sure that they are comfortable with those those risks. Um, but let's assume that we've we've done that and the client is very comfortable that it, it's an appropriate option to engage to understand the information, not necessarily engage to pay, which is what we call it. Then we can ask the hacker, what information have you got? It, it's a common misunderstanding with, with um, uh, victim organizations we work with that they will be able to get proof of all of the information taken. But in reality, we rarely do. We might get a sample of files. So five to 10, if we're lucky, usually two to three small files that say, yep, yeah, here's the information that we've taken and they might provide us some screenshots of what's gone. 
it's quite rare that we get a full sort of um, full screenshot or full file listing of what's taken because they know exactly what we're going to do with that. Yeah. We're going to take that information. We're going to do a risk assessment and go, no, we're not worried about that information. Uh, not worried is maybe strong. We're less worried about the information leaking online. We'll update the regulator. We'll update our customers as we as we believe is appropriate. But we're gonna, you know, we're gonna grin and bear it through this. Yeah, we do our best. We do our best to try and find it all. And it's it, it, for in during the forensic investigation, it is the kind of crown jewel. If you can find that, that is what we'll hone in on and try and identify the exfiltrated data. Um, we rely on a lot of it's. We go into a network cold, so we don't know, we're not we don't have a presence on the network before the incident. Um, so we jump into the network and deploy our tools and work from there. So we can't look back in time. We can only look at the artifacts that are recording when the attack happened. Uh, and some of the key ones we look at are well, for start, you look at the firewall. If you've got good logging on that, you're going to see how much data went in and out of that network. Um, typically, for actors like to operate on the network when it's quiet, nighttime. Um, so you might see peaks and troughs, you know, out of hours. Um, and also some of the artifacts left on the systems. Uh, you can look at like system resources, how much, what applications are using bandwidth at certain times. And you can kind of try and guess, um, kind of get, get a figure together about how much data may have left. And then you go to, back to the basics where you're looking at what actual data did the threat actor eyeball? Mm-hmm. What did what were they doing on those systems when they were on them? And a lot of the time we get lucky with artifacts like shell bags where you can see them clicking through your file structure, just you know, perusing the files, looking for the, the good information. And every now and then we literally just see them, you know, archive into a zip file a whole load of your HR data or, or what have you. Um, but you know, with every investigation, like we've had somewhere, you say to the customer or client, Where's your crown jewels? Where's the the key information that threat actor want to steal? And you 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 look you target that and you say, okay, right, they've not been on here. Where else? And then you go down this kind of continuous dialogue with them, and then you realise, oh, you know, Dave in the basement is running this server that's not got endpoint detection uh, monitoring or anything on it, and it's got the secret source on it, and the client, the you know, the client isn't even aware of this until someone you know finds it this is the crazy thing of what you guys are describing because it's both the logging policies and the asset management are foundational to the way we've we've always talked about cyber but the paradox and you mentioned shadow it luke i'm also and you you also talked about cloud we think about sort of bring your own devices. We think about remote working over the past two or three years now. That's completely changed the way we manage our networks. That's completely changed the way users themselves behave because it's now assumed that we should be able to be very agile walking around or traveling around or staying at home and and still working on different devices. So have you seen that challenge be one of the reasons why these groups came to the forefront so much, was there a radical difference in the way networks looked five to 10 years ago versus today that's facilitated these operators? Or is it simply because there's more of them, they've gotten better, as you said, Luke, they grew as much as we did grow, that essentially made them what they are today? We've had a lot of cases where either BYOD or personal devices have led to the attack. Um, and we've seen, you know, people using their personal device to access corporate resources or even just have synced passwords in your Chrome browser. 
um, you know, they've got a profile on their work laptop and then they just sync it to their personal laptop. You know, they go, we had a case where somebody basically downloaded some pirated software and um, ended up deploying a rat onto the system, remote access Trojan, and then they scraped the passwords from the browser and then they were able to kind of leave that laptop and then jump into the corporate network from a completely different system. Um, so we've had a lot of that. I thought we'd have a huge explosion of this threat. We didn't um, because companies left their key architecture still in place it, where it was in the cloud with the same protection, et cetera. So you still had to get in uh, and the the education pieces coming out from government and from cyber companies about MFA. Yeah. I think that did limit, um, you know, the, 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 the impact of this BOID kind of working mm -hmm. from home situation happened. But yeah, we had a lot of cases. The initial sort of six months of, you know, working from home, everyone working from home was pretty tough. Um, a lot of it was deploying our tools as well on these remote um, systems. People went in their houses, um, you know, uh, some of their kind of software deployment tools maybe weren't fully deployed on the endpoint systems. And just having that kind of oversight by the IT department on all the devices that were allowed to connect into the networks, it wasn't there in the beginning. It's one of the most frustrating parts of reporting to the sort of crisis management team in my role where I go to Luke and say, hey, um, how many how many sort of endpoint tools have we deployed across the network to perform our threat hunting? And what percentage of that is it um, deployed across the network? The yeah. question. Because, <laughs> because that, that's the key question, right? It we is, can say yeah. we've deployed 100, you know, 100 endpoint tools, but if there's 1,000 you know, endpoints on the network, then we've only got 10% coverage and therefore we only know 10% of what's going on, which is not enough. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a case recently, which I think is similar to one that, that uh, Luke was just touching on, where every, every day we logged on the number of endpoints checking in to our infrastructure had increased by about 500 That's and each day, yeah, each day we yeah. said to the client well how many are we aiming for and they said well about this and then, then we come in the next day and then we'd have 500 more than they said and they go oh well maybe that's because it's now deploying on this other part of the network that we forgot to tell you about. Exactly. Yeah. And it wasn't on the network diagram. We were like, okay, fine. Well, maybe that's in scope as well. Uh, and, and this thing grew and grew and grew. So the number that I reported through to the board changed every day wildly in terms of percentage deployment, which as yeah. I'm sure you can imagine caused great frustration and made me feel like I couldn't do my job properly because they were looking at me like, what are you talking and about? And I'm sure the board members were very comprehensive and understanding of why we couldn't come up with the exact number of computers for them in their heads that was available. Yeah. I didn't sleep a wink through that whole investigation because <laughs> when the, when the investigation started, I resourced our infrastructure for like a few hundred hosts and it ended up going into tens of thousands. So our, our little machine there was like basically <laughs> melting a hole through yeah. the floor. <laughs> Smoke coming out of the Literally. office. So this is an interesting, cause I want to jump back on, on, on something you just raised, Luke. Your anticipation, I think we all had this anticipation, that this threat category, those vectors, the, the, the TTPs that we're talking about here would have completely exploded since the onset of the pandemic and through to today. What we're hearing, however, is that there seems to be a slowdown in the ramp up of ransomware operations. So if you look at 2018 through to 2020, 2021, 
you know, the, the, the growth wasn't exactly exponential, but all data seems to suggest whether it's victim reporting, leak site monitoring, or even what is just known within the community, the growth was staggering. And then slow down. And we talked on the previous podcast, Mark, you and I, about the impact of the Russia-Ukraine situation on some of these groups and these organizations. But what do you guys think from your experience of, A, is that decline in the numbers and the volumes real? Because we know how difficult getting data on these things are. And, and two, whether or not, and I remember back between sort of 2014 through to 2016, 17, the increase in ransomware operation was was significant. We then had WannaCry and Alpetia, and then things slowed down for a little while. And we had this lull, which was both a reaction of law enforcement activity and groups essentially reforming and retooling. Which of these two scenarios do you think we're in? And based on your experience, have you seen these numbers decline? Yes. Okay. <laughs> is the short yeah. answer. Effectively, we were on this like roller coaster for the last few years yeah. of, of constant attacks. And every day, usually, well, Friday afternoon, 4 p.m., you know, the the IT department of the victim had been struggling with it for a couple of days. It gets to Friday and they they call us and they're like, you know, we need help. Uh, coincidentally, it's coming up to the weekend. Yeah. Um, so then we we jump on it and we had this constant and we would do, you know, we were running like seven, eight ransomware investigations in a week. Mm-hmm. And we were, it was like being on a roller coaster, literally, you're whizzing around on the track and then suddenly Ukraine conflict and then bang, it just stopped dead in the water. And I think in the industry, we always kind of knew that, you know, Russian threat actors were involved and Ukrainian infrastructure, you know, it was all very closely linked. This just went bang, proved the point. And uh, what we've seen, I believe, is that a lot of these um, threat actor groups and the members of them have been pulled off onto other more larger scale attacks on infrastructure that's not obviously financially motivated. Um, and we're still seeing the effects of that. It is picking up now. And we're, what we also saw, which is really interesting, is that the, I'm specifically talking about Conti here, um, the messages that they put out on their on their leak site at the time were just like blowed everyone away. They were, you know, one minute they were, you know, allied with Russia, one minute Ukraine, and it kind of flip-flopped. And then they had the big leak yeah. Uh, of their internal comms and it all just kind of fell apart at the seams. And now what we're seeing is those threat actors, all their infrastructure in Ukraine, we can basically consider as it's not usable anymore. Mm-hmm. So they've had to regroup and reform elsewhere. And now what we're seeing is smaller groups coming up with the same TTPs that Conti had, some of them using literally the same tools or variants of um and yeah, we're going through that. I made some notes this morning. So we had, duh, 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 duh. Oh, bear with me one sec. So like everyone's looking at where Conti have gone now. And we're looking at potentially Blackbyte, Blackbuster, Caracut, and of course Lockbit 2.0. They're the four kind of, but I don't think, I don't think we can just categorize Conti shifting into one of these groups. All their members have kind of gone their own way. This this is a really important point, Luke, and and I know Mark, you you want to come back on the volume question, but the we talked about two or three years ago this phenomenon of cartelization of the criminal underground, which which went from relatively well defined and moonlighting for states has been a feature of a lot of these groups for a long time, but the difference that we started spotting, particularly in the sharing of tools and in the sharing of 
services, the, the sort of commercialization of the industry led to a phenomena where individuals could work for multiple groups at the same time. And importantly, the services that one group developed and built was, and again, Mays did this with the leak sites, available to other groups. One of the things on the, on the I was listening this morning to, to uh, a, another podcast, I was talking about one of the FBI's most wanted uh, cyber criminal, which is allegedly a Venezuelan cardiologist in his mid-50s, who is responsible for having put together, allegedly, the Thanos ransomware builder. And, you know, the man's probably, if it is him, would have never had any physical contact with anybody in Russia and Ukraine, but that sort of cartelization process and, and the, the blurriness of the boundaries within the cyber criminal ecosystem are starting to really manifest. So are you expecting that decrease to flash back up as these groups get up to speed and start the rebuild the infrastructure in essence, maybe outside of Ukraine? I think it's actually more the infrastructure than right. the people that have dispersed. Again, my, I don't necessarily have specific facts to back that up, but um, we saw in the news individuals, Canada, US, all around the world getting arrested because they're taking partners uh, of in, in these sort of big cyber criminal gangs. So I think the people are all around the world. Uh, but what we can say is the infrastructure that we see connecting two victim organizations, at least historically, was coming from Ukraine, from Russia, from uh, you know other places as well. So we need that. I say we need that. That infrastructure, the criminals need that infrastructure to spring back up in another jurisdiction that is still hiding behind these geopolitical barriers of not allowing prosecution. And then I think ransomware will be back. What we have seen though in the sort of last month to sort of six weeks is um, a peak in business email compromises. Right. Now, I don't want to disappear too much from the title. You'll tell me off, Nick, of double extortion, but I think it's probably, um, you know, demonstrative of the fact that the, the, the ransomware groups aren't able to execute their attacks right now. Yes. And they're thinking, right, I've, and I used this term in my last in the last podcast, I've still got my expensive Lamborghini to fill mm -hmm. up with petrol that's even more expensive now. <laughs> so I need to find a way of making money. Let's go back to the age-old tactics. And funnily enough, we then saw spring up in the news this concept and we started seeing on cases where threat actors were bypassing multi-factor authentication. The golden bullet that was multi-factor authentication has suddenly been bypassed and business email compromises back. So they're, they're making their money some you know, another way, but... I, you know, the amount of money they make from business email compromise compared to the ransomware type cases is just on a different scale. It's so, a volume game at that it, point. Yeah, it, Exactly. It's a volume game. And we, I mean, we've seen some pretty large payment diversion frauds, but nothing compared to the ransom type payments that we've seen. And I suppose the pressure, I mean, there is no, no risk of having to engage in the negotiation. Can we come back to that point on MFA? Because I think this is Probably something we don't speak about enough in our industry. Uh, we it is it is one and still to all of our listeners, it remains one of the best controls any organization should put in place. But not all MFA is created equal. My understanding is a lot of what we're seeing as bypassing MFA is often sim swapping. Is that the case, or do you see what? Why is it that we're seeing these actors be able to bypass that control? 
well, it's it's not just SIM swapping. I think that's that's been around, but the new forms of MFA right. that re- rely on authenticator apps on your phone, right. for example, um, don't have that same issue. But we're starting to see session hijacking. Okay, where there's a trusted browser, trusted mm-hmm. device, security. Again, I'm thinking right. I'm getting a little bit complacent. Perhaps I'm not going to request an MFA authentication for every logon. Yeah. So I'm going to allow ten sessions mm-hmm. of certain lengths for on a trusted device with a trusted user, and then I'm going to re-request the MFA, if that device can be hijacked, so Luke mentioned user devices where Chrome uh, is linked between different devices and shared passwords, similar concept, get onto the laptop, get into the corporate environment and you bypass bypass the multi-factor authentication. And I I think that's going to continue because I don't think we can live in a world where every time you interact with some form of corporate infrastructure, you're required to authenticate it on your mobile device. No one would get any work done. And we have to strike that balance between productivity and security. I understand that. Uh, We may see that dial slightly change, but I think that's going to be cybersecurity. It has been cybersecurity and will be cybersecurity for years to come. That dial is going to swing back and forwards depending on how prevalent it is. I think what we'll see out of this lull is whilst in the cyber response team and DFIR, Digital Forensic Incident Response Team with Luke, we've seen that drop. I think that will probably instill a bit of complacency across industry because everyone will go, well, why would I allocate such a big budget to my cybersecurity spend because there's no ransomware going on right now, which logically kind of makes sense. But then we'll then, again, we then back on the roller coaster of less security spend, 12 months time, threat actors will be back with a vengeance. People have spent less money keeping pace with their security. Suddenly we're back to square one again. Luke, what do you see from a tactical or technical perspective as some of the innovations that these groups have or some of the technologies that we're bringing on board? You know, we've talked uh, we've talked BYOD, we've talked uh, uh, cloud services. Is there something that keeps you up awake at night that you're starting to see in organizations? You're like, oh, that's going to be a problem. It's, it's the constant evolution of the, the vulnerabilities and the exploits against them um, that keep us awake. So, you know, the... Patches introduce other vulnerabilities and like the perimeter systems, firewalls, VPNs, um, your web servers, your exchange servers, they're always going to be targeted and there's always going to be a way in. Um, and it's it's just a matter of time. You know, nothing is going to be 100% safe forever. And it's down to, you know, your basic IT principles, you know, your patch management, updating everything you can, monitoring and just locking everything down, uh, you know, principles of least privilege, et cetera. So, you know, every time there's a new big vulnerability that comes out, like, you know, we saw Hafnium and Proxy Shell, et cetera. At that point, then what I'll do is I'll task a member of the team and just say, right, find out as much as you can about this because a wave is coming. And I, I imagine that's probably going to be how we see the reemergence of ransomware. There'll be a really big vulnerability and a really popular piece of software, and it will just hit like a tidal wave. And we'll just have to just, you know, pick it up. And then the ransomware groups will be like, hey, we're back, you know, and then we'll go, oh man, remember when it was really quiet? And- <laughs> <laughs> you guys remember six months ago when exactly. we were talking, saying it was peaceful? Yeah. And I think a lot of it as well comes down to the tools that the actual threat actors use, the ransomware groups. So they're, they're specific per group. So, you know, you've got your content ransomware, you know, your Viac, et cetera. They are tied to the group. So if they don't have a tool, they can't operate at the moment. And I, I imagine that right now they're in that stage of development, building up a new tool set per organization. We've also identified lately a lot of um, 
kind of inconsistencies and uh, failures of the ransomware encryption and companies, antivirus software companies have managed to reverse it mm-hmm. and produce a key. And then their credibility is gone Yeah, um, as, an organi- as a kind of ransomware group. So they've got to get it right. You know, they've got a reputation as well as we do and our clients. Um, so they want to get it right and it to work every time. And then we'll see a big group come out like we always have, Maze, Conti, et cetera, and then we'll be back. Well, look, gentlemen, I think this has been a fascinating discussion and I'm conscious that we could go on for hours and hours. So I wanted to thank you both. I think there's great food for thought, both in terms of basic hygiene that we will keep talking about for the next probably 20 years. There are some very good thinking around sort of what's coming next and where do we see the trend in the future. So thank you very much to you, Mark, for being on the podcast this morning. No problem. Thanks for having me. And Luke, again, thank you very much. We look forward to having you on the next episode. Thank you very much. We have a whole host of episodes coming soon to Decrypt, covering the most crucial topics, breaking news, and strategic horizon scanning within the world of cyber that you need to be aware of. With analysis and discussion from our experts located around the world, subscribe to Control Risks Decrypt as we help you make sense of the cyber and technology issues impacting your business. For more information on how we can help you build a resilient, compliant, and secure organization realizing the benefits of technology, visit us at www.controlrisk.com. And remember, our experts are only ever one email away. Email us at cyber at controlrisks.com. 